next few weeks. We'll have a few weeks off in, the, in, in our uh, series, and then we're going to jump into a new series this uh, in June called Consider Your Ways as we go through the book of Haggai. We're looking very much forward to that. But before that, we need to finish up this series, and, and it's been a very interesting journey as we've come together to, to discover that we truly are strangers in this world, that the more that we truly live like Jesus, we're going to be different. We're going to look different, we're going to sound different, we're going to examine and understand life differently as believers, that we look at life through the lens of God's Word. And we are set into a family and a culture of what it means to be Christ-like as we seek to be this body that God desires us to be. This past week, I was uh, watching the special on the Marines. We have a few Marines here. Where are my Marines? Where are my Marines at? I got a few former Marines. Where are you at? Where are they at? Daryl? I don't see Daryl. Oh, Bobby, you're a Marine. Oh, you were the Army. I thought you were a Marine. Where's Chuck? I had a Marine. Where's Chuck at? Chuck is downstairs. Never... Oh, good. I can talk about the Marines and no one's going to care. Hey, Chuck, how are you doing? <laughs> no, we're talking about the Marines. And uh, as I was watching the special on the Marines, I, I was, uh, it starts off with the Marines, these young guys that are in this bus, and they arrive, every Marine arrives at night. I didn't know this. They arrive at Paris Island at night, and then they are suddenly, I mean, everything that they knew, everything about that world is totally transformed in a moment. That drill sergeant gets on that bus, and these kids' lives <laughs> go from zero to 120 in a second. And they run off the bus, and they are to get on these golden footsteps or golden boots, something like that. And, and immediately, you can see they're a little jarred at this new experience that they're going through. And as the, the next uh, 10 weeks, they are just learning so many different things. And, and as these older Marines were talking about it, they said, what they, they don't learn so many combat skills in their, their, their boot camp. What they learn is what it means to be a Marine. They learn this new culture, this, this new life, and what it means to sacrifice and and, and, and what it means to simply give one's life for the sake of one's country and for the sake of one's fellow soldier. And they, these drill sergeants' responsibility is to tear them down and build them back up. And they take them through all of these different tests and trials to prepare them for something better. And it, what amazes me about them is their motto. And, and undoubtedly, we've all heard it, Semper Fi, right? Semper Fidelis. It's a Latin term that means always faithful. And these Marines, are they, they have it placed within their, their, just embedded on their soul that they are to be faithful to the point of death, to faithful to their brother, to leave no one behind, to be faithful in the midst of battle, to be faithful in the midst of trial, and to continue on until no one else will continue on, until they, they themselves give themselves to die. And I, I thought about that concept, and I think about how we are called to be faithful. And for many of us, that's one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? To be faithful. I mean, many of us were just like Peter. We understand failure all too well. We've given in. We've given in to temptation. Sometimes we've given up. We've sinned. And we've not been faithful. And in a lot of ways, we're a lot like Peter. Because Peter made great boasts of the Lord. That he was going to follow God no matter what. Even if everybody else deserted, he was going to be faithful. He was going to stand the test. He was going to do it. But we know that's not what happened. That the moment that temptation presented itself, he gave in. In some ways he gave up. He despaired. 
he was ashamed. And yet Jesus restored him. So if anyone understands what it means to be faithful, it's Peter. He understands what it meant to fear, to give in to temptation. And he's writing to the believers in the early church that are experiencing extreme trials. Now some think that Peter was written around the time of the Neronian persecution that was going on in Rome. And if you don't know or aren't familiar with the history there, it was bad. I mean, awful. We think that persecution is tough today, and in some lands across the world it is. As a matter of fact, according to statistics, we have the greatest time of persecution in the world today than we've ever had before. People are being killed. There's being mass rape. People are being uh, forced to try and recant or the faith. And it was no different than Peter's day. Matter of fact, the Christians in Peter's day were um, captured, soaked in kerosene, placed on poles, and lit on fire. So they could be torches to light the streets. That's how awful it was. I mean, to be a Christian and to be a follower of Christ was extremely difficult. God calls us to be faithful in the midst of suffering. Peter understood that lesson that he learned from his failure, and yet he gives us hope on how we can be faithful in the midst of suffering. And just like the Marines are the few, the proud, the Marines, so too do we see as suffering escalates and heats up that those who truly are Christ followers are few. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 7. I'd like you to read this with me, or just listen in. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So the way that I look at it, as the church, what we are, are the few. We are the few, not the proud, but the purchased. We are the believers. And as believers, Peter is giving us some words of admonition how to view suffering that we're going through because as believers, we're going to suffer. We are going to suffer. It is inevitable. And that's what Peter invites us to do today is to be faithful in the face of suffering and how to even view suffering and how to go through it in this sin-sick, rebellious world. Just like those young men are immersed in the culture, on what it means to be a Marine, Peter is immersing us in the understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower in the midst of this world. And that's what he invites us to today. So before we go any further, let's pause for a moment and ask for God's blessing on our time together. Our Father and our God, we come before you hungry to understand and to know what it means to be a Christ follower. Lord, give us the strength to persevere. Give us the minds that can understand. Help us to be able to discern what is true and what is real and how we can evaluate our suffering. Lord, give us strength. Give us the right way to see and do what it is that you have for us to be and do for your glory. And for those who are suffering, those who are wanting to give in, those who are wanting to give up, may you show them that they can be faithful, not because of who they are, not because of their own strength, but because of who you are and how you persevered. And Lord, though we might have been failures like Peter, we can be faithful because of you and who you are as we rely on the strength that comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's jump right into our text. 
if we are to be faithful, then we have to understand that it involves understanding sanctified suffering. If we're going to be faithful in the midst of suffering, we have to understand what type of suffering that we face. Now, notice in there that I have the label sanctified suffering, meaning that there are different kinds of suffering. And Peter even addresses that as you look within your text. He says, don't be surprised at what's happening to you. He goes on and he says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But look at verse 14 specifically. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's saying that there are different kinds of suffering. There is the suffering that we all experience because of our sin. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sinful choices or the sinful choices of others. So we looked at this a few weeks ago when we said that we can suffer because of our own sin. We can suffer because of the sins done to us. We can suffer just because we live in a sinful society. We can suffer because we might be uh, experiencing spiritual warfare, just as Job was, that there was a heavenly battle going on of which he found himself in some regard as a pawn. And there might be secret reasons that we never know. Or it could be that God desires to show and manifest his power in you as a follower of his name. That's sanctified suffering, and that God is trying to make you into the person of His Son. That He is working something within you beyond what you can imagine. Beyond what you can imagine. We have to understand that why we suffer. And that means that we, we have to look at suffering a little bit differently. For example, when you experience pain, what is your first reaction? To change it to stop the pain, right? If we experience pain, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And even as believers, we have this tendency to ask ourselves this question. If we are struggling with a pain, then I must be doing something wrong. And it could be because of our sin. Or it could be that God has brought suffering into our life to bring us, to, 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 to conform us further to the image of Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable thing to think about. And that's not how we are to look at it. I mean, or that's not how most people look at it. Look, look for example, at James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. James gives us an example of how we should look at suffering. And it's totally, radically different than how the world looks at it. James says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials, or face various, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What are those first few words? Count it all joy. Joy. Now, when you face trials, let me ask you a question. Do you consider it joy? When your basement flooded this week, did you consider it an opportunity for joy? No. I imagine some words came out of your mouth that you wouldn't want anyone to hear. But we're to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. Why? I mean, especially if we're going to suffer as a follower of Christ, we are to consider that joy. Why? Because it is an opportunity to be made to look more like Jesus. It's an opportunity where God prunes us. God is using us, shaping us, and molding us into who He wants us to be. That means we have to have an entirely different perspective. 
We have to have an entirely different perspective. We need to look at our suffering from the perspective of heaven. That's how we need to look at our sanctified suffering. See, there's the story that undoubtedly many of you have heard over the years about the boy and a caterpillar. It's a great story. One day, this caterpillar climbed out, uh, up a stick, and he started acting strangely. This boy had seen the caterpillar several different times. The boy worriedly called his mother, who came and understood that the caterpillar was creating a cocoon. The mother explained to the boy how the caterpillar was going, to through, going through a metamorphosis and to become a butterfly. The little boy was thrilled to hear about the changes his caterpillar would go through. He watched every day, waiting for the butterfly to emerge. One day, it happened. A small hole appeared in the cocoon, or chrysalis, and the butterfly started to come out. At first, the boy was excited. The butterfly was struggling so hard to get out, it looked like that it couldn't break free. It looked desperate. It had it, it'd been making no progress. The boy was concerned, and so he decided to help. So, he ran to go get scissors and then walked back, because he'd learned not to run with scissors. He sniffed the cocoon to make the hole bigger, and the butterfly quickly emerged. As the butterfly came out, the boy was surprised. It had a swollen body and small, shriveled wings. He continued to watch the butterfly, expecting that at any moment the wings would dry out, enlarge and expand to support the swollen body. He knew that in time, the body would shrink, the butterfly's wings would expand, but neither happened. The butterfly spent the rest of its life crawling around with a swollen body and shriveled wings. It never was able to fly. See, as the boy tried to figure out what had gone wrong, his mother took him to talk to a scientist from a local college. He learned that the butterfly was supposed to struggle. In fact, the butterfly struggled to push its way through the tiny opening of the cocoon, pushes the fluid out of its body and into its wings. Without the struggle, the butterfly would never fly. The good boy's intentions hurt the butterfly. See, God brings struggle into our life and suffering into our life to enable us to fly, to enable us to fly with Christ, to be more like Him. So we need to understand that the sanctified suffering that God is placing us in, we're to have a heavenly perspective as we look at it. We also need to understand that we have a heavenly participation in it. A heavenly participation in it. Because notice at our text that we share in the sufferings of Christ. We share in the sufferings of Christ. Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Glory is revealed. We're going to be participating in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we participate in the sufferings of Christ? We, par we participate with Him by dying to our sin and living the life that God desires us to live. Just as Christ suffered to put away sin, so we suffer to put, uh, to, uh, um, put our sin to death in our mortal bodies. It's us considering ourselves crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives, but the Son of God who lives within us. Now, what does that look like? What does that really mean? Perhaps you've heard the story of Vibia Perpetua. Probably not. I doubt if, uh, if many of us in this room are familiar with Perpetua. She was, uh, 
She was a 22-year-old mother of an infant son who was martyred for her faith in Carthage, Africa in the year 202 or 203 A.D. Along with a, she was a, a, excuse me, a catechumen, which means that she was a convert to Christianity who was getting ready to be baptized. Often within the early church, uh, baptism, they had their baptism class, but their baptism class didn't last a week. It lasted an entire year. And oftentimes, a catechumen wasn't even allowed in the assembly of believers. They had to wait outside for a year to prove the genuineness of their faith before they could be admitted to the greater fellowship of Christ's followers. They would have to go through many classes and understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then usually on Easter time, they would be baptized, showing that they were true converts to the faith. And this woman was a catechumen. And she was arrested because she would refuse to offer sacrifice to an emperor. She could just come up and put incense on the altar. And she refused to offer sacrifice and declare in some way that this God existed or that Caesar was Lord. She refused. So she was arrested and she was brought before the procurator where she was condemned to die in the arena with beasts. Along with another woman who was eight months pregnant named Felicitas. Both of these women, along with several different men of the Bible study that they frequented, had been arrested and were going to be thrown into the arena. And what they would do is that they would take, for instance, the men first, and they would either tie them to an animal, such as a wild boar, in the hope that the boar would gore them or they would be dragged to their death, or they would tie them to something and let the animal maul them. That's what they would do. One man named Saturnus actually said that he would be killed by the leopard to his prison guard, and he didn't draw the leopard, he drew the boar. So they tied him to the boar, and even the man who had tied him to the boar got injured by the boar and died of his injury several days later. And the boar ended up bucking off and running, and this man was dragged behind. So he didn't die. So the guards took him, and then they tied him to, uh, tied him to a pole or stake or something along that line, and they waited for the bear to come out and maul him, but the bear didn't come. Finally, it was the leopard. The leopard came out, and it drew his neck. The blood flowed forth, and the crowd started shouting in joy that this was his real baptism. I mean, it was a terrible thing. When it came time for Felicitas and Perpetua, they were stripped naked and taken out into the arena. But even this bloodthirsty crowd couldn't take seeing these two women, knowing that one of the women had been breastfeeding. The other woman had actually just given birth. Felicitas had given birth while in prison. It was amazing that she knew she was going to die for her faith, but Roman law would not allow a pregnant woman to be executed. She knew that she would be executed after giving birth and then be killed as a common criminal. And she wanted to be, die a martyr's death along with her brothers and sisters. And it's amazing that they prayed to the Lord that she would give birth, and she ended up giving birth while in prison, giving, giving the child up to one of her sisters in Christ who ended up raising this child in the faith. So both of these women were stripped naked. One of the women had just given birth. Both of them were lactating, and the crowd couldn't take it, demanded them be taken back in. They put them in tunics. They came out, and then the animals came, and it was a mad heifer. An angry heifer that ran and gorged them through Perpetua up in the air. She landed, she trampled over Felicitas, and yet that wasn't enough. They lived. So the, the crowd thirsted for more blood. They grabbed these two women, they brought them before the gladiators, they ran them through, and yet it still didn't kill Perpetua. And she took the gladiator's sword in her trembling hand and put it to her throat. 
she died for her faith. And even before that time came, she looked uh, along with the men, and they looked at the Roman counselor, procurator, and they said to him that God will condemn him for what he is doing now. And that angered the crowd even more. They began to insult them even before they were executed. And they rejoiced. These believers rejoiced at the opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ. To be brought before the world. To be displayed for everyone to see. So that they could share in the sufferings of Christ. In knowing that they are dying to this world. And letting the life of Christ show and shine through them. It's an amazing and remarkable story. Paul talks about this participation in the sufferings of Christ in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 through 11. And he says, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, we're to die to our sins. We might literally die like Perpetua and, ex, and, ex, um, and experience insult for the name of Christ, but many of us need to be dying on a daily basis. We may not die physical deaths for the Lord's glory, but we need to be dying to our sinful nature. That is also showing that we are participants in the sufferings of Christ, that we also might be participants in the resurrection life of Christ. That's what it means to take up our cross daily and follow the Lord. And we're to look at it, our suffering differently. I mean, many of us right now are suffering for doing good and for being a follower of Christ. Are you suffering in your workplace? How about with your spouse, if they're an unbeliever? How do you look at that? You know, it's interesting, within this text, as we look at it in verse 13, we are to rejoice in this. Now, look back at verse 12. As he says, beloved, do not be surprised. The word there for surprise literally means being surprised at like a guest showing up at your house. And then he's saying, don't be surprised when suffering shows up. It's part and parcel of being a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ. As though something strange were happening. Don't think it's strange, but rejoice that you're sharing in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice. Look, notice it's there twice. And be glad. Three words that are talking about having joy. When his glory is revealed, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Blessed. He's saying there that if you do what Jesus wants you to do, the world is going to reject you. And you are going to suffer. And how should you look at suffering? How do you look at your suffering? Jesus says that we're to do this. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are to understand that we are going to feel this. We are going to go through times of persecution if we're doing what God wants us to do. And we're to rejoice that God has given us the opportunity to look and sound and be more like Jesus. That's why I love the apostles, after they had been persecuted and beaten for their faith in Acts chapter 5, this is what they did. Acts chapter 5, verse 40, 40, 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We're to rejoice in our trials because it's an opportunity for us to be more like Jesus. 
When we're suffering for the name of Christ in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, when people malign you, when they say kind of false things about you, and you get irritated and angry, it's an opportunity for you to experience what Jesus experienced and become more like him. I mean, that's a great opportunity, is it not? To be more like Jesus. They suffered for the name of Jesus and rejoiced in it, and so should we. Now, we are to have a heavenly perspective, a heavenly participation, and lastly, a heavenly presence. Heavenly presence. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God rests on you. Now, the word insulted was used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for reproaches heaped on God and his saints by the wicked. In the New Testament, it becomes associated with the indignities and maltreatment Christ had to endure. We, when we are insulted like this, it's because the Holy Spirit rests on us. Now, what does that mean? Now, let me give you an example from Scripture. How many of you have heard of Stephen? Stephen. He's the first martyr of the faith in the book of Acts, chapter 6 and 7. And as he is brought before this court, he is... Uh, he had done many miracles. He had testified. He debated in the public square. And these guys couldn't take it any longer because they couldn't refute his wisdom. So they bring him up on, false, on charges of blasphemy, which meant that it was a capital punishment. And as they're labeling all these accusations at him and saying all these hatred, hateful things, the text says this about him. I love this. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Why? It's because the Spirit of God rested on him. It gave him peace in the midst of that moment. That if God's bringing you to look more like his son, he's going to give you the power to get through it. God will give you his spirit to help you in your time of need. And it's a fulfillment of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. Read this. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. It's to show how great he is as we suffer. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For, you are to, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. And here's the most important part right here. For it is not you who speak, the spirit of your father speaking through you. See, in the midst of that suffering, God's going to give his spirit to you to suffer for his name, that his name might receive glory, and that you might have joy in the midst of it. And that will ha- cause men to see who Jesus is. Because they're going to wonder what would possess a person to endure such insults for the name of Jesus. And then Jesus is magnified. Because you're showing that my life is worth so much less than his glory. And when people see that you value that over yourself, they want to know who he is and what he means. So we have this heavenly heavenly participation in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And we have this also heavenly presence that will help us get through the difficult time. We're soaring for his name. Without the Spirit of God, we have nothing. Did you know that? God gives us his Spirit so that we can fly with him. I want us to imagine for a moment a hot air balloon. We've all seen hot air balloons, right? And I want us to imagine for a moment a hot air balloon that's filled with helium. Or they fill it with that hot air, and it rises. And it won't soar, though, because it's tied down, right? And it's not until it's untied that it can soar. 
See, many of us, are, when we are believers in Christ, we're given his spirit, but yet for some reason we're grounded. Why? Because we're tied to our sin and we're holding on to the things of this world. It's not until we let go of those ropes that we can soar with Christ, and then we are caused to rise. Though we might be filled with the Spirit, we can't truly soar until we become hot spiritually for the Lord. And how does that occur? Through prayer. Through prayer and reading the Word. I mean, we're already filled with the Spirit, but when we're tied down by our carnal desires, we have to let go of those ropes, and then we have to continually feeding the Spirit of God within us with the things of God by reading His Word, by praying, and then we begin to soar. Then we get a heavenly perspective. We're no longer tied to this world, but we can see things, excuse me, from the spirit, the point of God's, or through the lens of God's Word. Let's get back to our text. Look at verse 13 for a moment. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I'd like us to focus on that word revealed for a moment. The word there means revelation. Revelation. It's actually apocalypse, from which we get our word apocalypse, or the revelation of Jesus Christ, when Jesus is revealed. It's the time when Jesus comes again. We will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed when he returns again. What does that mean? It means that we are to be looking forward to the Savior's coming. Looking forward to the Savior's coming. I think many of us aren't looking forward to Jesus' coming. You know, I'm reminded, and maybe you had this experience when you were a kid. You did something wrong and your mom was home. And your mom said to you, you you knew you were going to be punished, but she says to you what? Wait until your dad gets home. Wait till your father. It's not even your dad anymore. It's not daddy. It's father. <clears throat> Wait till your father gets home. And then it becomes a moment of dread for the child, right? I had this experience. I would just, I, I was the kid that I couldn't handle that. I would walk in at like 15 minutes and I'd say, I'd like my punishment now, please. I don't want to wait any longer. I want it now. And I, I think many of us have that dread view of God. Instead, we should have the view of my kids. My kids find that I'm coming home. They, they often will go outside and they'll wait on the porch looking down the street for me. And then when they see me, they say, Daddy. And then they start to run to me. It's the best feeling in the world. When they run to you and they grab on you and they try to tackle you, you know, I think many of us need to look to Jesus like that. Not with dread that it comes with some sort of punitive damage, but with delight, knowing that he's here. The object of our, des- our, our desire, our hope, the reality of who he is, that's where joy is. We need to change our perspective and look forward to Jesus' coming. We're to be rejoicing, and that means several different things. It means that we need to see his revelation and understand that he is coming again. And what will we do when we see him? You know what many people will do? They are going to dread it. Just like Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. We will dread that day. We'll wail, fearful, for what has been done. But for those of us who delight, we know that we have not been destined for wrath, but we have been destined for salvation. As 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9-10 through 10 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. I think many of us do dread, not delight. And when he is revealed, we're to look forward to that, knowing that that time is coming and he will be revealed. And it should be a time of rejoicing. Rejoicing. Over and over within this text, Peter says, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice. We're to be known by our joy. How joyful are you? Now, I'm not saying you need to walk around with a com- this weird nut job smile on your face. I mean, many of us think that we're to be like, praise the Lord all the time. Praise the Lord. I have cancer. Praise God. You know, I, I, I don't think that's what it means when he has joy. I think we have a wrong understanding. Even when it says rejoice always, it's the understand, understanding of a quiet certitude that goes beyond this world. It's hope personified. That's what it is. That's what joy is. Do we have a joy within each one of us? I think many of us are too burdened down because we're living by law, not by grace. We need to understand that we are to look forward to his revelation and to rejoice in it. Why? Because then we have our reward. Our reward. Now, is it wrong to be motivated by reward? I think we have this very altruistic understanding that we're not to look forward to reward. But Jesus gives reward. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there is reward always offered. Jesus says this in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Blessed are those who are going through sanctified suffering. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. It's a motivation. There's mo- reward is a motivation. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We will be rewarded for our work for Christ. Are we? Is that a, a right motivation? What kind of? What does that mean? See, He has given us a way to serve him, and he will reward us for doing so. For we are sharing in what he has done, and then we are allowed to experience the joy and fruit of the sacrifices we've made for him. For example, in 1991, Emmett Smith, running back for the, the Dallas Cowboys, won his first rushing title. Do you know what he did? He went out and bought all of his offensive linemen $5,000 Rolex watches and allowed them to share in what was done through him. As he advanced, and they weren't the ones advancing, he was the one that won the award, and yet they were rewarded too. See, we are advancing the kingdom of God. We are sacrificing ourselves so his name might go forth, and God will reward us accordingly. And it's a great, it's a great deal better than a Rolex. It's a great deal better than a Rolex. That God is going to reward us for all that we have done for him. God will reward our suffering. However, Peter wants us to know that it should that we should be sanctified suffering, not suffering for evil's sake. Let none of you in verse 15 suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evil doer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And then in verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, it's according to the will of God, entrust their souls to, the faith, to a faithful creator while doing good. I'll tell you, those words in verse 17 are a little bit terrifying. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome? Outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment begins with us. And what does that mean? In the Old Testament, the household of God literally means house of God, refers to the temple, but now God's people are his temple. Judgment beginning with God's house alludes to Ezekiel chapter 9 and Malachi chapter 3, where the Lord purifies his people. Judgment here is not punitive however, but purifying and cleansing. The suffering of God's people refines them. We are refined by suffering, just as the butterfly was refined. What will the outcome be? See, if the people of God need purifying, then surely the judgment of those who do not obey the gospel will will be much more severe. Peter reinforces this point by quoting Proverbs 11.31. From the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Scarcely saved does not mean that the righteous just barely receive salvation. Scarcely refers to, means with difficulty. It means that the righteous are saved in the midst of suffering. Their salvation is not easy and simple. Now we see Paul bring this point out in in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at this with me. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become manifest for the day, day of judgment, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The idea is is that we're going to find out what it's really made of who we really are, what we really did for the Lord, what really had pure motives and impure motives, and all that stuff will be removed, and we'll see the purity of what we have done for the Lord, for what it really is. So when it means scarcely saved, it means that it's going to be with difficulty, and God's fire is going to purify us, and we'll see who we really are before the Lord. Now, what else does Peter want us to understand? Because Peter knew the time was short. Let's look back at our text as we walk through this. Knowing what awaits, knowing that there is a judgment that is coming, how should we then live? Peter wants us to understand that we should have sanctified suffering, not for doing evil, but we we are also to continue doing good and trusting ourselves to our Creator. And that involves us being faithful of the remaining time. Being faithful stewards of the remaining time. I referred to stewardship a little bit earlier. We are stewards of the time that we have left. We know that the warning signs are there. I saw a special yesterday on Pompeii. Pompeii. And what was amazing about it is as the the volcano was erupting, I mean, there were signs first, and many people actually left because they knew that what was coming. Even though it hadn't erupted for 1,500 years up until that point, but many people continued to stay, not understanding that this was going to destroy them. I mean, it was so awful that when you look at the bodies that are there, people were holding on to their, their items that they thought were worth something. And they, they, some of them just died in the middle of moving. I mean, there were 75 feet or 70 feet of ash that came on them. 75 feet high of ash that came forth. And it, it killed everybody that was there. People were in the midst of moving, and it just loaded on them, and, it's, and, and they were dead. See, God's 
time, judgment is coming, and we don't know when it's going to come, but the signs are there that it's coming, and we need to get ready for it. See, those people didn't respond to the warning signs. We are who believers in Christ are to respond, just like those other people went on. They knew it was coming. We need to continue on at the task that we have, not trying to hold on to these things and trying to live the way that we lived before. We can't hold on to those things. It even said that people held on to their jewelry, what was prized for them, and they died with it. I mean, what sins are we holding on to? How come we're not obeying the gospel of God? What do we need to do? We need to be faithful with the time, the stewards that we have left, being faithful stewards. Now, how do we need to be stewards of the remaining time? It involves three things. First of all, it means having the right outlook. We're to have the right outlook. We're going to suffer for the name of Jesus, and we need to hold on. We need to keep the lenses of God's word and look at the world through them. Things are going to get worse and worse for us. That's inevitable. But we need to hold on and keep looking at the world through the lens of God's word. Peter says, don't be surprised. It means this. When you get up in the morning and you turn on the computer or you look at your newspaper and you can't be surprised at what the world says about God. I don't know why we're continually surprised at this. Maybe it means that because now we realize that our privileged position that has been there for, uh, since the beginning of the history of the United States is no longer going to happen and we're actually going to be persecuted. And I think that many of us don't want that. We're hap- happy with our comfortable Christianity. But the reality is, is that we're going to suffer. And Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Change your outlook. Don't look at what the world says about God. Spend some time with God first and look what God says about the world. That'll help put you in perspective. That'll put you in perspective. So we need to change our outlook and how we view and understand how we are to live. It also means that we need to understand that there is an inevitable outcome. There's an inevitable outcome. That judgment is coming. That the world is coming to an end. It is coming. So there's this, there's this, outlook we're to have, we know, and we we should conduct ourselves in such a manner because we know that we're going to be called to an account for all that we have done. And how are we to respond? We're to be simply obedient. That's it. Simply obedient to the Lord. That's what Peter concludes in his text. He says that we are to make sure that we are not, we are doing good. Look at verse 5, excuse me, Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We are to understand that we're going to go through suffering, but we need to be keep doing what God wants us to be doing. That there is an inevitable outcome and that we need to be obedient to the Lord. Now what does that mean? It means that we have to understand that we are not going to be accepted by the world. Many of us are like girls on prom night. We're all dressed up, we're beautiful, and the world is our date, and he's a jerk. And yet, we want him to like us and to say we're beautiful. That's how many of us are. Here I am, love me. And he's going to abuse us. He's going to hurt us. He's going to leave us. We're not to love the world. We can't continually be tied to this world. 
Jesus said that. We shouldn't be surprised. Look at John chapter 15, verse 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We can't keep trying to love the world and, let the, and expect the world to love us. We can't be friends with this world. That means this fallen system, sometimes called the spirit of the age. James chapter 4 verse 4 says this. You adulterous people, he compares it to adultery. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, one of the most chilling statements in Scripture is about a guy named Demas. Demas. Demas was one of Jesus, um, Paul's traveling companions. He was a worker in the gospel of God. But then Paul gives us this chilling verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He says, For Demas, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The, the wording there is, is that he was with me, but he loved the world so much that he couldn't take it anymore. And he left. We have to disavow Demas. And we have to understand that we can't love this world. We can't love this world. We have to put to death this world. Why? Because this world is passing away. John writes this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Or as Dean William Engie put it this way, whoever marries the spirit of this age, the world, will find himself a widower in the next. This world is passing away. You want to love this world? It's not going to last. Try to hold on to this world. You can't hold on to Christ in this world has to be in the you can't hold two hands at once god's designed it so you can only hold one this world or the savior we can't love this world how should we then live look at verse 19 therefore let those who suffer according to god's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. It's to start and create um, another thought. First it's a summation, and then it's introducing a new thought, that we are to be entrusting ourselves. The idea there, it produces a certainty. We're to entrust ourselves to our creator, and when we do, we'll have peace, because we know he's going to bring everything to pass. And we're to keep doing good. The word there means active well-doing. We are to keep doing good, and that involves simple obedience, like I said before. And that means doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God, is Micah 6.8. It also means telling people about who Jesus is. Today, as you've seen up here, we have a new thing that we're introducing to you today called Finding 12. Finding 12. This is our initiative that our neighborhood development team has come up with that we're very much excited about. Jesus had 12 disciples. We're asking you in the next year to make 12 disciples. Or put it this way, to share Jesus 12 times. 
Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask you to commit to sharing Jesus with one friend each month. Twelve months. We're going to give you 12 stones. Got a little bag that Judy Frieders, thank you for Judy for making these, um, made for us. And in it are 12 stones, each representing people. Now, over the next 12 months, we're asking you to share Jesus with 12 people. Each time that you share Jesus, you're going to bring your stone in. We're going to have some um, markers that you can write in. You can write their name on it if you want. Then you're going to drop it in that container right attached to the sound booth. Now, we've designed 75 bags, 75 bags with 12 stones. If you know math, that's 900 stones. That thing back there is designed to hold 900, made by our own Scott Brown. He designed it, put it together for us. And our hope is to see this filled. To start, and, and each month, we're going to revisit this by having a new thing in our service we're calling Start the Conversation. We're asking you to start the conversation with family and friends. And what it means is, is that we want you to initiate and speak to them about who Jesus is. Now, before you freak out, because I think many of us, when we think about witnessing to another person, we get really intimidated because we don't think we know all the answers. Suddenly, it's like we're getting ready to take the ACT all over again. And we, we, just, we don't know anything, and rather than do anything, we just shut down. What we mean by this is we want us, or what we need to understand is that making disciples is not a product, but a process. It's not a product, not a, a process. And here's what I mean by that. Many of us have been uh, told our whole lives that if we don't have one, two, three, four in the plan right there, then we're not sharing the gospel. That's not the case. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Each part of that is a part of the process of making a disciple. Paul planted, Paulus watered, and God made it grow. So here's what we're saying to you. We want you to start this conversation, and it can be in many different ways. You may or may not be able to share the entire gospel. Chances are you probably won't. Because people aren't going to give you that, that opportunity to just walk up and share it. And I'm not just talking about cold evangelism. Some people are good at that. But I think most of us are much better at relationships with people that we know. And we need to start that conversation to kick it off. And it might be just giving a little bit at a time. Like, for instance, inviting them to church is starting a conversation. If you invite them to church, feel free to write that stone in and drop it in. This is for you. This is not to guilt you. This is to get us, is an opportunity to get us thinking about making disciples. And it's a challenge to take and use these stones. And then once we take the stone and put it in, we're, pray, we're committing to pray for that person, to offer that person up to the Lord, to continually commit ourselves, to understand that we're going to help them in this process. And you know what? God might only give you a snippet, an opportunity to share, and it might be that watering. You may not be able to share that entire presentation, but you might be able to just even show that, tell someone that you are a Christian. And if you've told someone that you are a Christian, then you should feel that opportunity to write it down and stick it in because that is part of the process. To understand that it's, going to, uh, it's also going to take a lot of persistence and patience. It's going to involve some persuasion, and it takes time. See, many of us think that it has to happen in that moment. I was reading in this, mor this morning in my quiet time with the Lord, Acts chapter 19, and I was struck at how Paul would go into these synagogues and he would reason and try to persuade them over several weeks and sometimes years to follow the Lord. 
So we need to understand that it, it's going to take time. It's going to take conversation. So we're really encouraging you to continue to do that. And if you want to take that challenge, we're inviting you to take one of these bags. And if you're a kid or if you're under, if you're 17 or under, you need to ask your parents before you do this. And, and again, it's between you and God. We're not going to come back, demand you. We're not going to ask you to count your stones. We're not going to have a, keep a tally of any of that stuff. This is not for that benefit, not for that. This is just a means for you to say, God, I have these stones. I want to bring down, like David, the giants in my life. And those people that I think they can never respond to you. And Lord, give me the courage. Give me the courage to share Jesus with them. To just even out myself as a Christian. To invite them to church. To talk about Jesus. If you've done any of those things, write a name. Write a name. Start the conversation. Find 12. One a month. I mean, you could, you, you could use all stones in the next day. We have some pretty evangelistically bold people. You might come in and go, I need another bag. <laughs> Great. There are some of you that might only do one. Some of you might take it, might be so scared, you may not do any. But my hope is for you is, is take the challenge. Take the challenge. Pick up one of these stones. And when you share that, share that, share Jesus, invite him to church, write their name down and say, Lord, I'm going to pray for this person. And I'm throwing my Ebenezer in. In the Old Testament, they would build these stones as, and build them into altars as a way of remembrance. And when we put it in there, that's what we're doing. We're creating a kind of an altar of remembrance. Asking God to remember the act of faith, the step of faith that we have made. And to use it for his glory. We want to see it fill. Now, we're going to sing a song here. In a moment, we're going to conclude our service. And as we're singing this song, if you want to take this challenge, and again, this is not a guilt thing. This is something that you personally want to do. Don't feel bad. You can easily make disciples without stones, okay? So don't feel bad. I'm not going to say that you're not holy for taking it. I might throw stones at you. Uh, literally. No. Um, but if you want to take that challenge, feel free to. And if it's between you and God. And your challenge is to do it once a month. Again, you might use them all up in one day. Or you could use them all up in your last month. Who knows? But it's your challenge to share the truth of Jesus 12 times in this next year. All right, let's close this time in prayer. We're going to sing a song. Jesus, or the song's going to come up. Actually, not sing a song, but it's going to be um, playing. And as it's playing, just feel free to come on up and uh, grab one of these bags to take with you. And if, if we run out, Praise God, we've got some extras. If you want to think about it, you don't want to do it today, you can call the office and we'll get you one. I mean, you can, people can jump in whenever. But our hope and prayer is that in one year from today, one year from today, or close, April 20th of 2014, I believe it is, is Easter. Our hope and prayer is that next Easter, we'll be able to see the fruit of our steps of faith sitting around us as we praise God what he's going to do with this initiative. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, we want to be faithful. So often we've failed. Help us to be faithful in the midst of sanctified suffering. Many of us are suffering right now, not because of sanctified suffering, but because of sinful choices. Many of us are just going through hard times, and we don't even know how to talk to you. We're keeping you at arm's length. Lord, please bring us near. Help us to see your heartbeat. Help us to understand why we're going through what we're going through. Help us to redeem our suffering for your glory. And Lord, help us to experience a presence like never before. And Lord, as we seek to be faithful, 
faithful stewards of what you've entrusted to our care in this strange world. Lord, help us to truly reach out and extend the truth of your name and truly find 12. Lord, we can't make someone respond, but we can share. We can start that conversation. We can take that step of faith to invite them to church. We can take that step of faith to tell them about our life journey and how we came to know you and how you've changed our lives. But Lord, whatever, whatever happens, we give this to you, asking you to do something great in us and through us for your name's sake. So Lord, we give you this time, we give you our stones, and we pray that you use them to build an altar to the glory of your name, an altar of remembrance that we can reflect and see what you have done through our steps of faith for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.